Hey, hello, friends, and welcome to the Chabura. For those who are here for the first time, welcome. We are an online Bet Midrash comprised of international students offering cutting-edge Torah for you to learn anytime, anywhere. Uh, just a note to say that if you're watching or hearing this public shoot on YouTube or podcast, know that the Chabura has a members component to it. This includes a whole range of exclusive classes for our members that are not publicly available. Aside for the unique curriculum of classes in video and podcast form, our members receive a free book shipped to them each year, have the opportunity to write for our journals and books, attend live events, and to connect with hundreds of like-minded individuals from over 20 countries. In order to access all of this, you can become a member at thechabura.com slash join, and I'll put a link to that in the chat box. Uh, we don't make a profit from any of our projects, so we appreciate the support of our members in ensuring the Chabura continues to provide cutting-edge Torah to a global audience. So if you enjoy what we're doing at the Chabura, please consider becoming a member today in time for our new curriculum beginning in September. Visit our website to find out more. And moving on to tonight, tonight we have the privilege of having a conversation between our Rosh Bet Midrash Senior Rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Dweck, and Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, Director of Atid and Web Yeshiva, and the editor of the journal Tradition. In this exciting conversation, they will explore the extremes of Judaism and how rabbinic leaders address them. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And thank you so much, Rabbi Dweck and Rabbi Sachs. Thank you so much, Ohar, for that wonderful introduction. It is a tremendous honor to be able to uh, have this conversation with Rabbi Sachs. I am just concerned that Rabbi Sachs's uh, camera or video is, I, is having some difficulty. I, I'm here. Perhaps let me log out and go back in. I'm sorry. Okay. Let's, let's try that. Let's try that. Thank you. All right, so he, he oh, but now we just make sure you're on mute, unmute, mute. There we are. Apologies. I'm joining from my telephone. Uh, there must be something wrong with my computer, but I hope that this will be all right. I hope that's all right for you. Sorry for the difficulties. All right, well, uh, we'll, we'll kick it off. Baruch Haba, Rabbi Sachs. It's an honor to be able to have you uh, with us on the Chabura. It's always nice to see you again, Rabbi Dweck. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. So you want, to, so this is, you know, the, the discussions that I've been having uh, over the last few weeks have been essentially set by our, by our, by our guest. And you wanted to speak about extremes in, in Judaism. So I'm think, I, I was wondering if you could perhaps orient us a bit to kind of where it is that you, you know, you might want to open the discussion together. Uh, well, you and I have had a few conversations over the last uh, number of years, uh, uh, so I thought this, this would be picking up on some things that we've been talking about, things that we've both written about, uh, particularly in, uh, in tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few years ago, we ran a large symposium in tradition about Professor Chaim Soloveitchik's essay, Rupture and Reconstruction, which was then marking its 25th anniversary of its original publication. And we ran uh, very many essays uh, re-exploring what he had what he had written. And uh, you taught me an important lesson about not being Ashkenormative, as they say, <laughs> because it was natural, it was natural that given Professor Soloveitchik's own scholarly interests and the community he was describing in Rupture and Reconstruction when it was originally published back in uh, in the uh, early mid-90s, that it was focusing on Ashkenazic Jewry in North America, 
earlier in the 20th century. Uh, you correctly observed, and I was glad that you jumped into the fray, that the very many issues which have become so definitive for how we think about orthodoxy today through that prism of, of the mimetic tradition and the text tradition and rupture and reconstruction played out very differently in the larger Sephardic world. And even within the Sephardic world, it had played out differently from what you termed the Eastern Sephardim and the Western Sephardim. And since you yourself, uh, your own biography intersects with both of these communities, both personally and now professionally, you mm -hmm. offered a, a, uh, a piece to that symposium, which was a necessary corrective to that. And among the things that you described, in which I think you and I, in a separate podcast uh, that we ran on the tradition website, uh, had to do with these questions of, mm -hmm. of how communities maintain a kind of moderation as mm -hmm. a hallmark and how there have been other trends within the larger Jewish world, the larger Orthodox world, both amongst Ashkenazim and Sfaradim, which have led to tipping away from moderation. Mm -hmm. And then last summer, in a special issue of tradition that came out in book length, uh, mm -hmm. we explored the thought of Rabbi Norman Lamb, mm -hmm. who, uh, who had passed away uh, the year before and had, of course, been a very, very significant figure in the world of American orthodoxy and of modern orthodoxy in general, and had indeed been the, the founder of, of tradition itself in 1958, the seat that I somehow, uh, Hakatan, now, uh, now occupy. And my contribution to that, my contribution to that, um, to that volume was an essay titled The Extremes Are More Consistent But Absurd. Yes. which explored his own writings on modern orthodoxy, on centrist orthodoxy, and on moderationism as mm -hmm. the kind of hallmark for what the community ought to be. So I thought that together, these common interests would make for, a, for mm. an interesting conversation uh, be between us. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I was very grateful to be asked to contribute to the tradition, uh, to the tradition journal that came out. And, uh, and it actually brought out, I mean, when I actually had to sit down and write it out, it brought, it, it helps always writing always kind of helps crystallize ideas that are otherwise, you know, floating in, in, in the mind. So uh, I appreciate that the opportunity for that. And, um, and yes, we've been speaking about these things in various iterations. And I read, I, I enjoyed very much reading uh, you know the the article that you wrote uh, about Rabbi Lamb and his his uh, you know which in which you essentially outlined uh, over the course of his career right so even before he became president of YU when he was you know when he was a younger rabbi and and uh, his his well I'm going to use the word struggle and you can correct me if if you think that that's too much of a word or that should, it's not necessarily accurate but reading your words I kind of felt that Rabbi Lamb had a struggle that he was that he was uh, that ran throughout the majority of his rabbinic career in needing to kind of navigate define you know I was I I recognize that you you even highlighted there that at a particular point, he, he kind of moved away from the term modern orthodoxy, went to centrist orthodoxy, then went back to modern orthodoxy, never was happy with the term modern orthodoxy. Um, but essentially, he, there was this struggle, there, there was this, this, you know, this, this constant tension and need to be able to 
reiterate, establish, re-examine, uh, uh, and reassert yeah, what, we, what was meant by modern orthodoxy, what was needed you know, from modern orthodoxy in the Jewish world among its adherents and those people who are questioning. Um, so, you know, reading through, I found that there was, there was a great deal of, of tension, struggle around that. How, how, how do you, what, what are your thoughts that's on the, that? So that's, that... that's correct. In other words, the um, Rabbi Lamb was always much more uh, at home uh, talking about the content of ideas rather than, you know, niggling around the sides and debating mm-hmm. matters of semantics, which are, you know, so often, you know, just distractions from, from substance, but sometimes, you know, take up all the air in the room, all the oxygen in terms of communal discussion. So at a certain point, he grew frustrated with uh, the, the, the moniker modern orthodoxy. In the essay, I, I mentioned drawing on the research of some other people uh, how the community kind of came to adopt this 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 name, uh, mm-hmm. modern orthodox. You know, the nature of things is often that you know communities don't always have the luxury of choosing their own names. Very often, those are names that are assigned to them from the outside. Very often, by their opponents. Uh, yeah. You know, the most famous example might be the mitnagdim or the misnagdim. Right. The opponents of Hasidut is a term which the Hasidim themselves give to their interlocutors, their, their, their opponents. Um, and at a certain point in the, in the early mid-80s, he came to think that modern orthodoxy had kind of taken on a kind of pejorative um, sense, that uh, it meant a community that was not so uh, strictly observant or not so careful about its religious commitments, a community that put modernity and engagement with secular culture first before mm-hmm. before its its religious duties uh, mm-hmm. kind of orthodox light and he thought that you know like a rebranding would help sharpen what the core values of the community were so he chose the term centrist orthodoxy but not centrism as a kind of um, he says in, in one essay not a kind of pariv form of frumkite or a kind of ideal what he says an ideological wimpishness you know this kind of idea of uh of 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 centrism but centrism and he here he hearkens to rambam and to rambam's vision of the golden mean and that Mm -hmm. idea of constantly trying to measure and judge and weigh one's character here Mm -hmm. the character of a community to always stay on a middle path, which is not a mathematical average, right? right? He says, right. He says very carefully, yeah, it's not, it's not some kind of mathematical average between, let's say, Reform Judaism and Satma Hasidim, right. uh, but, but a kind of moderationism, centrism in that sense of moderationism. But of course, this was not a very inspired choice. And, you know, like... Uh, you know, like people in marketing uh, mm-hmm. will tell you that you can't assume that the consumers are uh, necessarily holding in the finer details of the Rambam's Hilchodeot or Shmona Prakim. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and it was misunderstood. What he was right. trying to do was right. misunderstood. Right. So he, he very um, 
he very reluctantly later kind of gave up and moved back to the term modern orthodoxy, but well, at the same time saying that, that this is this is all just spiritually distracting. Mm-hmm. And it was around this time that he began talking. This was exactly the time that I entered Yeshiva University as an undergraduate. And I mentioned this in the introduction to the collection of essays in memory of Rabbi Lamb, um, that this was exactly the time that he began discussing Torah Umada, mm-hmm. which had always been a kind of empty slogan on the logo of Yeshiva University. And no one had ever really discussed it. No one had ever really talked about it at great, at great length. Uh, um, but he points so to he it. Really he really impacted, really, really. Well, he, he kind of pointed it. to this slogan, this the interaction of Torah and worldly wisdom right. as, as a way to help you know, let's say organize communal identity and communal values and what particularly Yeshiva University was doing, but Yeshiva University as the kind of flagship of modern orthodoxy movement uh, worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was more or less right around the time that Rabbi Soloveitchik made his exit from the public stage, you know, in the last decade or so of his life, Rabbi <laughs> Soloveitchik had taken ill and uh, and had gone into really into seclusion, not just into into retirement, leaving this colossal vacuum uh, you yeah. know, within within the community. And mm-hmm. Rabbi Lamb begins this discussion about Torah Umada, which turned to be a much more fruitful conversation than you know these these silly semantic uh, mm-hmm. uh, debates over what we should call ourselves. Because right. it allowed him to, instead of dealing with, you know, semantic arguments, to, to deal with substantive arguments. Substantive and his, arguments. And, his mm-hmm. and his book by that name, Torah Umada, which has now, I think, been issued in a couple of different editions, um, mm-hmm. most recently from uh, Magid, from, you know, Korin uh, Publishers, mm-hmm. um, with a uh, with a, an afterword by... Uh, by your late and lamented uh, senior uh, rabbinic colleague in uh, in Great Britain, of course, Rabbi Sachs, uh, Zichron Olavracha, um, who, who, by the way, contributed a version of that essay to the Rabbi Lamb Memorial volume shortly before his own untimely passing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that book, Torah Umada, offers a kind of smorgasbord a kind mm-hmm. of, of a menu of options mm-hmm. of how the interaction between Judaism and worldly wisdom, secular culture, the big wide world, how it has classically played itself out. Different models of, of Torah Umada throughout Jewish history. And the book was, was not understood in all quarters. Mm-hmm it was kind of thought that he was offering some kind of, I don't know, Chinese menu. Uh, you know, choose, choose, you know, choose something from this variety and that variety and mm. the other variety. But instead mm. he was putting forth portraitures of different mm. models for mm. how Judaism has, has played this out. And mm. those models, he tried to figure what their meaning was for us. Right. So looking historically at the Kabbalistic model, the 
classic Hasidic model, the model of Rav Kook. Interestingly, he does not discuss uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in this in this work. Um, Did he uh, see that as simply kind of like the continuation of the of the approach, and so therefore kind of you know speaking from that platform or? Well, that's a separate conversation about where Rabbi Soloveitchik plays into into Rabbi Lamb's, Rabbi Lamb's, uh, Rabbi Lamb's thought, um, and we can maybe save that uh, you know for a few moments from now if we come back to it. But uh, but what he was doing, he was he was saying that here are all the different ways that Judaism has historically has historically you know engaged with worldly culture, right. and and make no mistake. Uh, this is not some kind of of compromise. Mm-hmm. In other words, our first commitments are to Torah and mitzvot, but our commitments to Torah and mitzvot never meant that we should view wisdom broadly defined as something polluted or something right. uh, something uh, impure. Right. We always so, um, found uh, a way. Yeah. We always found a way through that kind of moderationism right. to incorporate right. it, and he he kind of sound a warning bell to certain trends that were happening. This was you know thirty five years ago, but he mm-hmm. he's, he sounded certain warning bells about certain trends that were happening in the larger Orthodox community that I think you know we have seen you know mm-hmm. come to come to pass uh, in our own day. Right. Thank you. I mean, there are two things that I kind of want to, I want to kind of, I want to highlight and perhaps unpack a little bit. Um, well, one, I'm, I'm deciding which order I want to do this in. I mean, I guess I'll say one thing. I'll suggest one thing, you know, kind of on the end of something you said earlier and on the end of the title of your, of your essay. Um, and that is that, you know, the, 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 the golden mean of the Rambam or of Aristotle, but as the, as the Rambam ends up putting it out, and this recognition of Rabbi Lamb that what we're talking about is is the is the midot of of a community, right? The midot of of a people, and how it is we we balance ourselves in terms of 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 not veering into extremes. And you rightfully saying, you know, that the extremes are, you know, you always know what's going to happen when you're sitting at the extreme. So any issue that arises, you can nine times out of 10 anticipate how an extreme mindset is going to respond. It's not, it's not questioning and constantly uh, looking at how it is that, that we best respond to the current circumstance. But what that suggests is that it's the, the, to be able to live in the middle for lack of a better term, requires a tremendous amount of active thought on a regular basis. And, and I think that, you know, when situations are relatively straightforward, it's, it's difficult as it is to do that. But when you have a world like, like the one that we're living in, um, in, which, in which not only is there constant change and development, the, I mean, I would, I would go so far as to say that, that almost every um, societal institution that you and I were used to uh, simply being there, you know, when we were growing up, uh, you know, giving, you know, rough period of time has been uh, for all intents and purposes, dismantled and restructured in very different ways. And some are not even done. Right. I mean, you know, gender is not even something that we can hang our hat on clearly anymore. We don't know, you know, nothing out there is, is kind of how things were. So when you're in the middle and you are choosing to, to assess 
what it is that's happening and to measure it against something, which that I think goes to the second point of what I wanted to address with you. But, you know, you have to measure it against what it is, whatever it is that you're measuring against. This case, I would imagine, you know, Torah, you know, or how it is that, you know, Jewish thought might might respond to such a situation. It it becomes, if not, um, uh, uh, you know, fatiguing and confusing. Uh, it, 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 it almost becomes impossible, some people will say. And they may say it consciously or unconsciously. And so the easy thing to, and that's why I think, I mean, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but we're not just looking at extremes happening in terms of Judaism. We are watching a world in which the extremes are more <laughs> severe and set today than we've seen in a very long time. And, and I don't- In nowhere what, more than the, than the political debates, which- Yeah, you know, the politics, social, social, social groups- you know, I mean, we've got we've got, uh, you know, gra- gravitations to the extremes simply because we are in a world that is so difficult to manage uh, in, in a kind of responsive, pragmatic way. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are on the on the uh, so, just the human psychological yeah. phenomenon that yeah, well, that, you know, humans are digging their heels into what they know rather than. Yeah, well, I, you know, I find this very troubling. Um, and it's interesting, you're, you're in uh, London, and I'm here in, uh, in Israel, uh, you know, two countries that are, you know, going through, let's say, interesting political moments. Uh, but of course, our there was somebody are... who has dual dual citizenship, Israeli and uh, and British, and he said, "I have no prime minister." <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> and oh, yeah. uh, so, in other words, but but both of us, of course, are native uh, of the United States, mm-hmm. <coughs> and it's just, I mean, uh, unimaginable what right. is happening in in the in the political discourse in the United States, and I I say this. You know, with no, it doesn't matter. No, it's not a political statement. This is an observational, this is an observational reality. And this actually brings me to something that I I just wrote in the most recent issue of Tradition, which is available online at (laughs) traditiononline.org. It wasn't planned this way, but we, um, but we, (coughs) excuse me. Uh, we we published a cluster of essays that deal with questions of Jewish universalism and particularism. Mm-hmm. This is one of those kinds of evergreen topics that sure. uh, that modern orthodoxy that orthodoxy you know kind of wrestles with. Um, and I began by pointing to an essay that Rabbi Salvechik had, had published in Tradition in the seventies, mm-hmm. an essay called "Majesty and Humility." which in many ways revisits ideas that he had written about a decade earlier in the, lonely, the, the better known essay, The Lonely Man of Faith. But there Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. Man was created of cosmic dust. God gathered the dust of which man was fashioned from all parts of the earth. Indeed, from all the uncharted lanes of creation, man belongs everywhere. He is no stranger to any part of the universe. In short, man is a cosmic being. But then at the same time, Rabbi Salvechik goes on in a kind of dialectical fashion to offer the exact opposite uh, point of view. And he says, man was created from the dust of a single spot. Here he's playing off a particular midrashic idea, the, the, the earth from which 
Adam, the Adama from which Adam was created, where did that earth come from? So according to one Midrashic position, it was specks of dirt from all over the universe, oh, and that gives man his, his, his cosmic, cosmopolitan, universalistic. But on the other hand, the Midrash says man was created from the dust of a single spot. Man is committed to one locus. The creator assigned him a single spot he calls home. Man is not cosmic. He is here-minded. He is a rooted being not cosmopolitan, but provincial, a villager who belongs to the soil that fed him as a child into the little world into which he was born. So I titled my essay, It Takes a Cosmic Village. Uh, <laughs> and this idea, this tension between being at home in the world, but yet somehow cloistered into our own little Dalit Amot, our own Altaheim, our own our own little world, this is the tension of the Jew. But I then kind of, raise certain questions about things that are going on in the Orthodox world, uh, particularly in the, in the United States, that there's some kind of irony that as Orthodoxy moves more and more to the right, as Orthodoxy becomes more and more closed off to certain things in general culture, there's a great irony that the one cultural item that we remain most open to is the culture wars. And I was very disturbed on a recent visit to America because of COVID. I, 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 although I'm living in Israel now almost 30 years, I've spent almost my whole professional life here in Israel. But nevertheless, I returned frequently to America, both for work and for family. And, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, as, as I'm sure you do, as I'm sure all expats do, still very much... American. Plugged in, plugged into American, American life and culture, and mm-hmm. certainly American Judaism. But this was the longest period I'd been away because mm-hmm. nobody was nobody was traveling, and mm-hmm. what a time to be away! And not just because of COVID, but because of you know the political trends. And I was I was very disturbed to to see the degree to which those culture wars have really caused fractures and fissures within within mainstream modern Orthodox communities. In every community that I visited, there was at least one person, and in some cases, a, a great deal more, who, who said to me, oh, you see that person? I, I, I won't talk to him. He's this kind of person, or he voted for that kind of person, or he thinks the following thing. And it could have, you know, it's kind of like a Mad Libs, fill in a, a candidate right. and an ideology and a political party. And it could have flown, you know, from left to right or from right to left. And I, I found this horrifying. That, 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 it's that horrifying, people... but, but, but to me, I mean, I, I look at that and it is, you know, it's part of the human condition. Why would the Jews be immune to, to these circumstances without a robust, and I think this brings me to, to, to what I wanted to, I think for me, this is the main thing that I want to discuss with you. Because after reading the, you know, your essay, and after reading, um, you know, how, how does you presented Rabbi Lamb's uh, kind of, you know, uh, assertions of modern orthodoxy and how he felt and what he wanted to do with it and so on. I can't help but but say that for, for me as a Sephardic Jew, right, um, it, it, it was somewhat foreign to me. It was somewhat foreign to me. And, and I think I was able to, um, 
to kind of somewhat which aspect, define, which aspect I'll, I'll explain, I'll explain what, what aspect I'll, I'll explain what aspect because uh, I think I was I was able to kind of uh, uh, delineate it in some sense you know for myself and I don't think that it's anything new but I think that it's something that that warrants discussion so what I regularly saw uh you know, and I've seen this in modern orthodoxy in general, not only in your article, just reading your article, it was quite, it was, it was quite prominent. And, and it was like almost a refrain that came through. And that is that there is this, there is this, this dialogue around two worlds, right? In other words, how are we going to live in two worlds? Uh, even with regards to the, to the slogan, you know, Torah umada. And that we have to be able to kind of like be in one and be in the other. And there's no contradiction between, between the two. We should be able to do, we should be able to do both. And I think that that was the most foreign part of it for me. Because... Well, this is actually, you, you write about this, I think, quite cogently in mm-hmm. your contribution to the rupture and reconstruction. In other words, Sephardic, because Sephardic Jewry didn't need to, didn't undergo the same. So, uh, so I think it's something else. to be reconstructed. Right. So I think it's something a bit different than that, because in my article, I was talking a lot about Eastern Sephardic Jews, right, who were not exposed to the Enlightenment and therefore did not have to deal with or did not find themselves needing to deal with the Enlightenment in the way that, you know, the Ashkenazic Jews did. What would have happened should they have been exposed? I don't know. Nobody knows. We don't know how that would have played out. So I'm not going to entertain that. My, my, My issue is a different one. For me, and this is something else about, again, my understanding of, uh, uh, you know, what I would certainly call classical Sephardic Judaism, certainly Maimonidean Sephardic Judaism, which, which you know, is, is what the Chabura kind of is, you know, is here to kind of uh, promote and to, to give space for and, and dialogue to. And that is that you don't really see, uh, and I certainly didn't grow up with this, yeah, you don't see the Rambam talking about uh, some equivalent even of Torah Madal. What you hear is the Rambam talks about Chochmazeh or Chochmazeh. But you, you very rarely, if at all, do you have, I mean, I'm kind of like racking my brains, not that I've been through the, the exhaustive Rambam in every place in, in form that he's written. But you rarely find the Rambam talking about this, this, this uh, you know, how do we live in two worlds issue. And for me, the Svaradim never really, uh, uh, thought in those terms and yet at the same time there was no issue with engaging in the world and so if I were to if I were to define how it is that I understand uh, perhaps what I perceive as a difference of the approach but I'm going to open it to you to say well maybe you know I don't know you may say well it's not really it's not really a difference it's semantics which we can discuss and that is it's not two worlds right the 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 question for me is what is the contextual uh, framework that 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 an individual is living in, right? And and for the Sephardic Jews, you know, that were Torah uh, faithful Jews, the context was always Torah, right? So, and I think of the fact that even the most basic Sephardic Jew was more often than not taught Hamishachum She Torah, you know, Mikra, you know, with with Ta'amim and so on. I mean, there was. There was something of a base framework that was that was you know part of of Jewish life, and then there was a question of of how do I understand the world in terms of my framework? But the framework was very firmly a Jewish Torah oriented framework. 
Right. And that's how I always, that's how I, I, you know, I always, you know, experience the discussions in the Talmud. I mean, you, anybody who's been through the Talmud, even in a cursory way, recognizes that Chazal are very comfortable talking about every single, uh, you know, subject under the sun, if it's, if it applies to the human condition or not. Right. So what I read when I was reading, you know, and, and, and I, and again, like I say, I've thought about this with regards to modern orthodoxy for a long time. I see, I regularly kind of hear these, these questions of how do we do both? And my question is, you know, what is the, what is the overall framework? And are the Western ideas, are the chokhmot, the, you know, the worldly wisdoms, are they being brought into that framework and therefore colored by and understood through that framework? And for that matter, enhancing the framework by the introduction of the new, of new ideals, or, you know, is it a Western uh, uh, framework that is that is essentially rooted in the world, and we're inserting Torah ideas into that framework, you know. And so this this kind of question and tension to me is not something that's familiar to me. And at the same time, um, I'm not sure that it's the same as 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 what it is that I'm suggesting, or what it is that I'm more familiar with. And so I, I thought I, I would ask you about that and and, and how well, it is, in terms if I, of. If I, in terms of historically how it's played out in the Sephardic communities, and indeed, you know, the particular challenges that Sephardic communities, you know, face mm-hmm. in navigating these things today, you are, of course, far better suited uh, than I to, to speak to that. And, you know, to a certain degree, you did in this essay of yours, which we keep referencing. Um, but I think that within, let's say, larger trends in orthodoxy, you know, and, and here, you know, and here we, you know, have to admit that there's been a certain blurring of the lines. And I think we would agree that there are very many positive things about the breakdown of these dichotomies between Ashkenazim and, and Sephardim um, uh, that affect, you know, the, the larger Orthodox world, regardless of the Eda that a person comes from. Sure. Um, sure. But I'm simply talking I, about it in terms of my so, experience. So I, I, think that, I think that a lot of it has to do with a kind of mindset that we haven't broken out of. So earlier in the 20th century, the world was presented as being threatening. And the secular world was viewed as being threatening. And orthodoxy was... was in a defensive posture. Right, but even when you say orthodoxy, right, we're, there's a lot here, right, that, that, are, that are part of the story, right? Why was it threatening? What was orthodoxy, right? In other words, but at, at this time that you're talking. I mean, just simply define it. These are, but these are important points because they're all part simply, of the, you know. Yeah, so sim- I think simply defined, if you look in the, in the 1950s, the 1960s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when our parents, let's say, were... We're, we're young. Um, uh, uh, orthodoxy, let's say, defined as a community of people committed to to, to serious Torah observance. Yeah. It was not at all clear that this was going to be a going concern. And mm-hmm. when all of the social scientists predicted that in a generation or two in the United States, orthodoxy would be a museum piece. Right. Perhaps there'd be a small community of, of observant Jews left in a pocket in Brooklyn or the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Um, but Judaism 
you know, the, the, the congregations were falling apart. People were mm-hmm. moving out to the suburbs. The conservative and reform movements were ascendant. Orthodox synagogues were tearing down the machitzot left, left and right. And mm-hmm. if you were a gambling man, that's where the safe money was. Yeah. And wh- what happened? Through a variety of forces and a lot of siyata deshmaya and fearless leadership, the exact opposite happened. Institutional orthodoxy in your country, in my country, and in our native land of the United States has never been stronger. There has never been a, a time in, 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 in Jewish history that there were as many children receiving Jewish education as today. There was never a time when, the, throughout all the years of the Galut, certainly, when security for, for Jewish observance was as protected, right, in the workplace, in I in think that's, I think that's all true. Right. Things that, you know, the, the old idea that if if a, if a Jew didn't go to work on Saturday morning, he didn't have a job come Monday morning. And therefore, Frumayidin, people who were committed in their heart and soul to Torah observance, went to work on Shabbat, went Absolutely. to work on Shabbat. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this was uh, Rabbi Rabbi Pinchas Tait, the, the heroic, uh, legendary uh, leader of the Elizabeth uh, New Jersey community, which was next to where where I uh, grew up, I once heard him tell an unbelievable story. When he went to Elizabeth, uh, he became the rabbi of Elizabeth because he married the daughter of the previous rabbi of Elizabeth, and along with the daughter, he be, he, he inherited the rabbonus of, mm-hmm. uh, of Elizabeth New Jersey. When he got there, I think in the 1930s, this was this was. Uh, you know, a time where out in the suburbs of New Jersey, you know, there was no day school. There was, sure. they were holding on by the skin of their teeth. He, he said that there were, there were Jews in town who Friday night would make Kiddush on the challah and Shabbat morning would make Kiddush on schnapps mm-hmm. because they all went to work on Shabbos. They would all get on a trolley and go down to wherever it was that they worked in, whatever sweatshop they worked in. And they knew the halacha, mm-hmm. that it's usher to drink the wine of a machalel Shabbat. Mm-hmm. Right? Can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine machalel Shabbat of that, of that, uh, yeah. of that level? But yeah. that's the way it was. And today, it's, it's just un. It's a different world. It's a completely different, different world. So, but but we but we haven't moved out of that defensive posture that the big wide world is is quite so threatening. Yes, certainly there are things in the big wide world. There's certainly things in secular culture that are. Well, there are toxins in everything. Like you know, like we say, we have to be concerned about toxins. But I, I'm. I think what so, I'm so I, I think so I think so. Just just let me to finish my thought. You yeah. asked a conceptual framework. I think that that. I think that there's still part of that um, uh, a tab- taboo and a certain sense of suspicion and the jaundiced eye that we look to the world with, but we're, we're looking always in the wrong places because yeah. when it comes to absorbing the leisure culture of yes. general society, mm-hmm. that we have done koshala mahadri. Right. right. In other words, 
just look at the options for for vacations. Yes, for of course, we've completely that, we've uh, completely that, taken that, that on. But we nobody, but people, but people don't feel that that's somehow adopting because a, they have control over it. Because they no, have control. They have it, I think they have control. Right? You know, there's the yeah. consumerism. Uh, there's but this illusion that we have control. Yeah, what you're describing, right, is is that there is a fear at the base. And I think I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, I think there is a fear at the base. I think the fear at the base is what drives, uh, you know, halachic extremism on many levels, right? It's not just what are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, are we going to lose the people or is the, is the religion going to fall apart? It's also, are we going to have to answer for it, you know, in terms of ruling the law? And I think, you know, the, the, this fear element, what you're describing is the fear of the, you know, the, the big wide world. Again, I, I don't mean it, to, I don't want to bring it back to, you know, intentionally to, you know, ethnic issues, but I, I, I genuinely think that this is, it's more prominent in Ashkenazi culture yes. than in Well, let, let, let me throw the question yeah. back to you then. Yeah. Because this yeah. is something that, of course, you're, 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 you're well-seated and well-suited to, to address, and, and you have in your writing and in your teaching. Uh, and you often, of course, particularly point to the example of Rav Avadi Yosef Zecher Tzadik Yuracha as this kind of, you know, maintaining this, 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 posture against extremism in halacha as a way of being the most authentically halachically engaged. And that's something that the Sephardic community has done, I think, much more uh, efficiently and much more bravely than the Ashkenazic uh, community. But even there, we see trends. And uh, so, so where do you see that going? In, you know, amongst Sephardi poskim? I think, in all honesty, I think it's a good question. And I, and I, and I, I again think that this has to do with the human condition, right? In, in the face of what the world that you that we are living in, the the pull to extremes, and, and it's important to recognize the extremes are not only to the right, right? I mean, there are extremes that are moving far to the left. I mean, there's a whole bunch of people whose parents were middle of the road, you know, what you and I would call Orthodox Jews, that are that are relinquishing uh, connections. That again, in the same way, I would in this in the way that you're thinking, you know, how did people how did people work on Shabbat? Then I'm thinking in many instances, how are the kids and grandkids of these people not holding what their parents and grandparents held and are allowing themselves to move very much to the left? So I think that what's happening is that the the human animal, right, is in the face of a very rapid, very fast moving and changing world digging their heels into what it is that they know and moving further and further to extremes. And I don't think that it's that different than what we're watching on the sociological and political, political uh, uh, sphere. And, I, and it is still important. I mean, I think in our discussion, it's important for us to be able to kind of like mark this year, because I know that this is something that you and I very firmly believe and agree on. I don't want to speak for you, but I, knowing you, I know this is true. It is still essential that the center holds. And and that there is that there is teaching and and guidance and um, and education around what it means to be able to manifest and to hold strong at the center. And that is something that we are, you know, that we are struggling to be able to maintain today. And 
Yeah. So, so I think there's a, there's another there's another. Uh, and I don't think that's here. different. I'll be clear. I don't think that's different between Sparta and Ashkenazi. No, I agree. I agree. We were that's we were talking thing. historically, and I was saying sure. in terms of you know perspectives and fears and frameworks and so on. But I think here in the world today, where we are globalized for all intents and purposes, and there's huge cross pollination, it's just what's going on with the Jewish people. Right. Right. No. No. I, I agree with you there. But there's another wrinkle here, and that is that part of all of this conversation to take it back to to Rabbi Lamb and Torah yeah. was that yeah. the engagement with the world, which we either embraced yeah. or looked at with, with caution, was mm-hmm. a kind of engagement with culture, uh, um, the, the, the kind of idea of the best that's been thought and said, uh, the idea of the Western canon, liberal yeah. arts, that these were things that somehow had the potential. It doesn't happen automatically, but these are the types right. of things that have the potential to ennoble the human condition, of course, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, wrote about this uh, more eloquently, perhaps, than, than, than anyone else. But that today, altogether, the humanities and the liberal arts and liberal arts education are on the ropes. Uh, that, you know, uh, people are, are not getting the kind of broad Western education that uh, that you know even just a number of years ago that absolutely generations ago i mean what everything is and education and culture has become extremely utilitarian focused and that uh, changes the whole conversation because the question of torah umada there has to be something of substance on the other side of the equation in order for there to be some kind of 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 interaction and if it's just business focused uh, and I do not, I do not, uh, I, I do not begrudge anyone who feels the need uh, to have a career in, in business. After all, it means kemach in Torah, but yeah, kemach but alone is not enough. He's being, being used for yeah. for these purposes, and, uh, and I think that, and that's true. But that's true in, in in across Jewish communities and across worldwide communities in terms of the degree to which people are no longer engaged with. I think that's true, that. but I think that there's more here. There's more here because we can say easily, you know, it used to be that there was some substance in, in, in you know, in Western culture and thought, and today there isn't. I think that, you know, I don't think that's what you're saying, but it's a, it's a large generalization. And the reality is that even from a, a Torah perspective, you know, a Kadosh Baruch who's running the world, and there's going to be elements within that world that are important for us to be able to look and see what's, you know, what's happening in it and what elements of it might we recognize within the framework of our, of, of Torah thought. Yeah. And, 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 and Torah context, there's always going to be something, uh, you know, that is of value for us to be able to, and I believe that anyway. And, and, you know, again, I, I, I question this kind of, it sounds like there's a dichotomy, right? It's either that world or our world. And perhaps, you know, I was thinking about this earlier today. You know, it's chokhmat yavan lechud and tarbut yavan lechud. Yeah, there, there's, there's always something to be seen in the chokhmah. Yeah, then, which is different than the tarbut, right? Which is different than the culture. There's always something to be seen in the wisdom or in the thought. Even if it's something that we want to look at, think and say, you know something, I don't agree with that. Uh, as opposed to the culture of the society that is, that is occurring. But there has to be a measure. And that's, that's what I think is important to be able to highlight here. And, and the measure for us has to be a framework of Torah, of sophisticated Torah thought, right? 
and how it is that we understand the details of our, our current world within that framework. So the problem is, is that one needs a framework, right? Or one at least needs leaders that have that framework and are using that framework. And, you know, I, um, and I wonder whether modern orthodoxy today or where modern orthodoxy is with regards to that question, you know, if that, if that makes sense, you know, or is it simply just, you know, it's, it's getting too scary out there and we can't, you know, be in both worlds in the way that we once thought we could. And then the whole concept of modern orthodoxy kind of is in question. I don't know if that's fair. Despite, you know, despite, you know, uh, if somebody would cut out of the conversation here, they would think we're both chicken littles uh, fearing that the sky is falling down on us. But uh, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think that, uh, first of all, I have a lot of optimism about uh, Torah and Yahadut and our ability to somehow always pull through. It would be naive to think that there is such a thing as any one community which remains unchanging and unevolving. That's, we, we, we wouldn't want such a thing. No. Um, and, you know, modern orthodoxy will, will emerge, you know, in each generation responsive to the challenges that that face when you say that, that you're optimistic that where do you see where do you see modern orthodoxy going in the next well, five years ten years five, i mean i don't know if that's a fair question but let's say let's say it perhaps what are the trends that you see that you're kind of keeping an eye on what where do you see see, see that things are moving right in terms of modern orthodoxy. I, look, I think that there's um, a lot of conversation that's happened you know, England naturally is is always a smaller, a smaller community, um, a smaller community that punches above its uh, weight class, but a, a smaller Perhaps, community. But I, you know, I mean, when you talk about England numbers, but yeah. I, I think that, yeah, I think that there is, uh, you know, and some people have written about this and observed it. Uh, there is a certain sense that there's something of a of a brain drain uh uh, from American modern orthodoxy towards Israel. Uh, that uh, modern orthodoxy, after all, has always been a kind of um, intellect, there's a certain kind of intellectual buy-in, uh, you know, which is part of the problem, by the way, because not, right. every, not every person is cut out to be a little religious philosopher. Yeah. Right. Not everybody has met. You know, this is this is a critique. We can take this back to the conversation in terms of the Maimonidean ideals. Right. Part of the challenge of the Maimonidean ideals is that it requires such a such a a, a, a lofty buy-in on the part of the adherent, and not everybody's a little philosopher king, um, yeah. and that's a challenge. And there are many people. There are many people who just simply, you know, couldn't participate in in the vision of such a religious community because. Uh, you know, the world needs, the world needs uh, simple Jews as sure. well, thank God. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but there is a sense that a certain amount of the intellectual leadership of modern orthodoxy has gravitated to Israel. But mm. that's happened at a time when, you know, we live in much more of a, of a global village. Yes. And, right. um, you know, how, well, you know, not so isolated for, there. Right. It's not isolated. Right. But, but, but that, that does mean certain things for who are the educators in our in our schools, who are the yeah. rabbis of our of our schools. And I think that's something that we have to keep our eye on, because yeah. that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where, sure. you know, our ability, you and I and others, 
you know, to have these lofty conversations and think that it has, it has some kind of meaning for the people that are listening to us. But ultimately, the impact is who's the person in the classroom with our children? And yeah, no, who's, the person, who's the person in the pulpit with our families? And, uh, and ultimately, that shapes, uh, you know, the nature of a community far more than what gets published in a journal of Jewish thought or takes place in highfalutin conversations on, on Zoom. Uh, you know, in the in in the evening, and I think that that's you know the place to be to be looking. So you know, I know that you know my friends back at Yeshiva University, you know, the, the people who were my roommates and classmates, you know, who are now responsible for running the institution. Uh, mm-hmm. It's on very good footing, and of course, there's always a challenge, and there's always a crisis, and there's always great need. And but if you if you kind of look, you know, from a, a 20,000 feet, you realize that things are really institutionally, organizationally, communally. Again, like I said, they've never been, they've never been this strong, which doesn't mean that it looks exactly the way that it looked in, in, in 1994 or in 1964. Right. And that's okay. On the contrary, it's good that it doesn't. Um, so I think that that's, uh, you know, that's one thing. Well, I think that's a very, very important to, point. Yeah. yeah. To take it back to the point of conversation where, you know, kinds of religious ideology and political thought intersect. Mm-hmm. Of course, in Israel, it, it means something else entirely, mm-hmm. uh, because here we have the great schut of, you know, a Jewish community managing its own autonomous affairs, mm-hmm. and the degree to which religious Zionism, which is not exactly identical, it's not an I- ideologically identical movement to modern orthodoxy, but there's enough overlap that we can talk about the two communities as, you know, as being, as being one, um, the degree to which religious Zionism has politically become so transformed, um, uh, is, uh, is something I think to be concerned about. Uh, I, I know that Rabbi Yosef Blau, the great Rabbi Yosef Blau of Yeshiva University, uh, just penned an op-ed that appeared in the Times of Israel this week, uh, bemoaning these these facts that religious Zionism as a political movement here in mm-hmm. Israel, the, the classically the Mafdal, the National Religious Party, which which no longer exists, um, you know, it was once a was once a big tent party that drew in people across religious denominations, uh, and and was concerned about things like social welfare and education, not just religious education, but also right. religious education and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and healthcare and, you know, these, these, these important issues. And they said Torah and Judaism has something to say about these things. And this is the great gift that we have returned to be Liot right? To be the masters of our own destiny in our own land, because now we can take the Torah values, right? The Torah values aren't just about what happens in, in the synagogue. It's what happens in the hospitals and it what happens on the unemployment line. And it's what happens, you know, in, 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 in the secular schools. And because religious Zionism gave up on, on that in order to focus almost exclusively on questions of land and greater Israel, um, that comes at a great cost. Even if you think that land and greater Israel is the most important value in in the Torah, it still mm. comes at at a very great cost. 
Um, mm-hmm. So here it plays out in a, in a different way and a potentially troubling way. But again, you never know how, how uh, well, you know, here because we have elections so well, frequently, there's always a chance to, uh, you know, get it right the next time. And if we don't get it right this time, we'll get it right, you know, three months down the road at the next elections. Many That's millions, the, millions of shekel later. Yes. I think I, I do want to I do want to recognize what you said about the institutions and having the teachers in the classrooms and the rabbis at the pulpits and so on. And I think you're absolutely right that that is where the rubber hits the road. And that is the most important thing. And, you know, you 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 touched on on England and it's happening less so here. I think that is happening less so here. And it's something that is very important for us to um, what, what what's happening less so. I think that the you know the, the the community the Jewish community in in Britain is predominantly I mean I'm talking about the Orthodox community is predominantly again using the word centrist right it's quite moderate um, but the rabbinate is is less so right, right? the rabbinate the rabbinate is a bit less so and um, and that's it's it's part of the kind of the Jewish you know dynamic. In, in the country, and um, and so I, I think that there's 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 room for for uh, I mean we need to be able to train rabbis in in the pragmatic worldly uh, approach to Torah, and we need to be able to train teachers in that as well, and uh, and you know it's something that certainly with the voice of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Allah Shalom, you know there was very strong voice for it. And people kind of you know were able to connect to that, but you know with his passing, there's certainly a void there. And and in general, you know, in, in British society, there is that kind of difference between the the leadership and the and the people. Not in every area, and certainly not in every institution, but it's definitely something that is part of of Jewish Orthodox life here in the country. And so, you know, well, look, here, I, think I, yeah, I think it's natural that uh, you know, like the um, rabbinic leadership should always somehow be a step beyond the the community they lead that's how we that's how we move the needle but that question yeah the differential between you know if you if there was a kind of mathematical formula we could develop for 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 where the rabbinic leadership is and where the community is there's got to be a kind of delta uh, that we can look at to say that at a certain point, if the leadership gets out too far removed from where the people are, that's to the detriment of everyone. If the leadership is exactly where the people are, that's also to everyone's detriment because there's no sense of, you know, uh, I don't know, man's man's uh, uh, man's reach should exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for, as Browning said. That's that's the role of rabbinic leadership to remind people that there is a purpose for heaven and that it's worth reaching for it and stretching. Mm-hmm. But there's a certain point where the, the horse has lost the cart and uh, you know, that plays out differently in England than in America, than in Israel and uh, within each place it, communities play it out differently. And that's, I think that's another thing to keep an eye on. Um, yeah, you know, yeah absolutely agree. I, but I, I'm, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly uh, encouraging and a chizuk to hear that you, you're, you're, you, you are optimistic for how it is that things are moving forward. It's always important to hear. And uh, looking at time, I'm, uh, we've come to the end of our time, 
And I want to thank you again, Rabbi Sachs, for your your uh, your. Thank you, Rabbi Dweck, and thank you for the work that you do. Wisdom, your 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 erudite, articulate, uh, you know, way of of expressing these very very important thoughts. And thank you so much for for supporting and being a chizuk to the to the chabura, which hopefully is another thank kind you. of force within this within this space. And I always look forward to being able to do more together. And, 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 and I to you, I to you. I hope to see you soon. Uh, and I'll just remind uh, the members of the Chabura to visit us at traditiononline.org uh, because it's important that uh, people be reading and thinking and engaged with ideas and uh, with scholarship and with, uh, with uh, philosophical writing and the ideas that are meant to inform and raise up you know, the community on, uh, on the kind of kind yeah. of engagement engagement with thought that, uh, that can help move these things along. We've got the link to it in the chat. So everybody can pick up on it there. And yes, absolutely. Okay. Thank you, Ralph. Have a good night. Good night. Thank you well. so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Fascinating. Thank you so much.